Hey folks, it's Thursday of Holy Week, the day before Jesus died on the cross. This is the day of the Last Supper. We call it Maundy Thursday. This is like the last calm before the storm. Jesus has called out the system very clearly, and the religious elite are all ready to get rid of Jesus, and they want to do it before they celebrate their big holiday of the Passover. And Jesus... He's at this point where he is done with fighting and with confrontation. Like, you know, when you've been in that point in that really tense relationship and you knew you had to speak up and say the ugly truth and you did it and you just went off and left it all out on the table and everybody heard you and you're like, okay, I'm done. I'm at peace now. Everybody knows where I stand. This is Jesus' attitude on Thursday. He's done. You see, the others are wondering, what's he going to do next? What's underneath the anger there that we saw at the temple? Is it more anger? Does he hate us and want us dead? Is he going to keep coming at us with stuff? Just in that moment, whenever everything is out on the table and the truth is out there, that you find out what's underneath. Is it hatred or love? Now, his enemies, they're all arms up. They're in fight mode, and so are his own disciples, many of them. So he asks his disciples, prepare us an upper room. Now, there's all this talk about whether or not this is Passover or an early pre-Passover or a regular old meal, that all the signs in the gospel seem to point to it just being a Passover meal. They may have done it a night early. We don't know. But if it was, or even if it wasn't, Jesus was showing that his disciples were family. Passover was something you did with your family. But think about who is there. This is Jesus' last night on earth. Jesus has been the center of all this controversy, but he wants to have a meal with just his family, the 12, the disciples, his boys, his brothers, his closest friends, including Judas, who you know is wearing guilt all over his face, right? He's just sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's made an arrangement with some of the elites in town who are going to meet them somewhere in the middle of the night and get Jesus. And so, of course, they all get together and sit on one side of a long table like Leonardo da Vinci painted. (laughs) No, they didn't. They sat around a square table, and Jesus in one story goes around the table, and he washes their feet, which is what a servant, of course, would have done. Like, Sometimes just a little snippet like this can show you so much of the character of an individual. He's the most hated, wanted personality in town this particular day. There's all this controversy about him. He's also maybe the most popular person. And he just goes and he has this meal with his boys and then he washes their feet. He's not off in La La Land. Like he's engaged with the people closest to him and he shows them what it means to serve. And you notice that he doesn't discriminate. He washes Judas's feet too. If you miss the Judas part of the story, you miss the Jesus part too. In the Greek, in John chapter 13, the Gospel of John, the first three verses, they read like one big long run-on sentence. It says something like this, During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back back to God, got up from supper and laid aside a garment, taking a towel, He girded himself. He girded himself. It's less than 24 hours since uh, Judas has sold Jesus for silver. And Jesus knew. And Jesus got his towel and he girded himself like a man and he washed Judas' feet. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. See, this is what real Jesus people are supposed to be, forgivers and lovers. It's our mark of identity. It's kingdom-type 
love, not cheap love. So they eat what seems to be a Passover Seder. And Jesus famously dips what John calls a morsel into a bowl. Now this word gets translated wrong sometimes or, or, or I think poorly because a lot of people think this was bread and it could have been, but it says the word morsel and he dips it into a bowl. Now if this were Passover, the dipping bowl would have been salt water to commemorate the tears that the Hebrews had cried in slavery in Egypt. And the morsel wouldn't have been bread, it would have been a bitter herb like parsley. It was supposed to make you shudder when you ate it, to remind you of the bitterness that slavery had tasted like. It left a gross taste lingering in your mouth. And so whenever you ate this, you were reminded of what it was like to be in slavery underneath the oppression of an empire. And Jesus doesn't eat it. He dips it in the salt water and hands it to Judas. Judas, you can keep tasting the bitterness. You can keep your money in your pocket and keep being a slave to your fear and keep playing these power games. And I will keep washing your feet because I am free. I won't taste bitterness anymore. John says that Jesus loved them till the end, to the finish. And this, this was it for Judas. He leaves. To him, forgiveness still had limits. Forgiveness like Jesus, though, it comes with a cost. Now, Jesus, he's in this place. He could have used the crowds. He could have fought. At this point, he still could have escaped in the night and ran away, but he didn't. Instead, he takes his guys and they sing a song on their way up the hill to Gethsemane. Now, the word Gethsemane, where they go, this is a garden, and the word means oil press. It's an olive grove. This is really cool. There are still olive trees there today that produce olives, and these trees have been carbon dated to be about 900 years old. They're some of the oldest in the world. So we assume that this garden's been putting out olives continuously since this Maundy Thursday, maybe on just two or three generations of trees, which is pretty cool. Anyways, don't miss the symbolism here. Jesus goes to Gethsemane. He's in this state where he refuses to fight and he refuses to flee. He goes to an oil press and this is where he finds himself under the weight of the most intense pressure of his entire life, which is not when he's crashing the temple and it's not when he's getting killed. It's when he's all alone. It's night, right? John of the Cross calls this the dark night of the soul. It's that moment where you're enveloped and there's no way out of the darkness. You, you can't fight and maintain your integrity, and you can't run and maintain your integrity, and you just have to be still and absorb the pain of reality, of rejection and betrayal. That's when you're healing to the world. The text reads that the pressure is so great that he, just like the olives all around him are going to be crushed for the oil, he is sweating drops of blood that are coming out, which is a literary foreshadowing of the cross. Essentially, whenever you stay in the moment, you stay true to your covenant and your family and you get pressed, love looks a lot like blood. So he cries. Uh, The third time he cries. The first was for Mary and Martha whenever Lazarus died and Mary and Martha didn't get it. And then the second time was the city of Jerusalem whenever he came in and he cried over it because they didn't get it. And this is the third time. His own closest friends, his inner circle, they aren't getting it. It says they kept falling asleep. 
how incredibly humiliating and lonely. And so like he, he just wants to know, is there any other way? If people could just get it without there being blood, right? Like if people could get how stupid a nuclear weapon is before they were dropped on people. If humanity could get how horrible racism is before the Holocaust or how bad slavery was before the wars and economic cultural fallout. If people could just get how horrible it is to underpay employees before we find out their family has fallen apart under the strain or how horrible it is to ignore kids before they go off the deep end or if people could get how horrible it is to bully kids at school before there's a school shooting, right? This is personal for Jesus. His cousin has died because he was speaking truth and it just led him to an early grave because power interests are always rushing to protect themselves. Greed and selfishness and power seeking always wait and silently grow until they're exposed to a greater audience by the undoing of an innocent victim. It's the only thing that wakes people up is whenever they see some bloody aftermath and they can't blame the victim anymore. This is why Jesus had to die and die innocently. Now, let's straighten something out. There's been all this talk through the years about how God is up and on the clouds doing some math equation. He needs, for some reason we can't explain, he needs some perfect sacrifice and therefore Jesus never sinned, which makes no sense, by the way. It's completely nonsensical to divide all actions into sin and not sin and then pretend like somebody's going to bat a thousand and Jesus happened to be one out of 128 billion of us. Makes zero sense. It wasn't even how they perceived sin or purity for that matter. Jesus had to die innocently in this case to shine light on the collective self-seeking evil that he was a part of. Never mind the, the point that, uh, that he was 100% perfect. That doesn't even make sense. When early Christians said Jesus was blameless, they, uh, they never would have meant that he went 33 years without making a mistake or without having a selfish thought. That's ridiculous and it doesn't make sense when you put it on paper. The word blameless... It was used to describe Job, this guy in this Old Testament story, who really didn't do anything to cause his suffering. The point was this. In this whole interaction, this whole Jerusalem week, this whole Jesus narrative, he played the part innocently and with the best heart, and might I add, brilliantly, so as to leave no one to be able to lay any fault for this death on him, so that later... Everybody who was there and who knew Jesus would know with full assurance that the power games that killed him were in fact evil and that he was in fact right, righteous, because this guy wasn't in it for himself. Like he really did love his nation and his friends enough to die for them. He was the living example that empathy could actually exist in greater form and that sacrificial love is the way forward. This is why Jesus had to die. So his disciples kept falling asleep. And he's like, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Now don't miss what's happening there, that heavy symbolism. They're falling asleep, deeply symbolic of what's going on. Because if you're unintentional, you fall asleep and you drift into the same games that everyone else is playing by not keeping watch and staying alert. Jesus tells them, pray that you don't fall into temptation. What temptation? Well, the one that they're falling into. Because Judas's people are about to come along and arrest Jesus with a mob and Peter will pull out a sword. This is the same Peter who's like trying to, trying to be all bad and say, I'll, I'll die with you, Jesus. And he tries to chop a guy's head off and he gets his ear. 
And some, the same Peter that later on says, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus tells him the Hebrew version of, boy, please. Um, Jesus prays in the garden that this cup would be taken from him, which was language that meant this suffering that he's about to go through. Now, there's been a lot of talk about this. Is he asking for an out? Some people think, in effect, Jesus was like wigging out and having a moment. He's all divine, but let's cut him a break because that crucifixion stuff's got to be really hard, right? Now, some people go the other way and they suggest that Jesus, since he may have been sweating blood, he was asking God to keep him alive a little while longer and don't let him die prematurely. But I think when you see the context, it all makes sense. Of course, he wants to avoid the physical pain, but that's not the point. The point is, if there's any way to change Israel without the pain of more death, that power structures can be subverted without human sacrifice. Any way that these people and this system can be brought down, reformed in his own country, truly be made a light to the nations from the ground up, then let it happen. Because isn't that what we all want? Like if you're working for a corrupt organization, don't you want to fix it the least disruptive way possible? If you're an employee at Walmart and you're like, hey, you know what, this business is pretty corrupt and I want it to be completely fair and equitable for everyone, wouldn't you prefer that it gets reformed rather than go bankrupt and go out of business? But the very business that Jesus is a part of is built on flawed assumptions and greed and that equity, that equality for everyone will mean that the whole business would collapse because it would go bankrupt. I think he's saying, is there any way to expose the human power game without a victim having to die? Is there any way we can expose this for what it is and get our nation, Israel, back on track so that we can be the example of how to do politics in a nice, orderly fashion? Any other way by talking about it? Can I convince people by my words or my intelligence or another donkey trick? Can I run away? Can I regroup and we'll do another awesome show and convince people? Or am I really going to have to die? And then where's the assurance that if I die, it won't be in vain? Where's the assurance that if they kill me, it's going to have any effect on the people around? See, this is part of death is you don't get the assurance. There is none. Because when I die, what can I do then? Like, I'd rather run for CEO and reform the business. I'd rather run for president or chief priest and just be a good one, and then maybe they'll see. But it's in his dark night of the soul, Jesus realized what every honest politician knows, that nobody survives the power game without giving up empathy and soul and heart and love such that keeps you human. So the story goes, Jesus pleads three times with the divine. Is there any way to do this without an innocent victim dying. Can we do that way instead? But there is no way. It turns out love looks a lot like blood.